Hello and welcome to Dinis Guarda YouTube podcast series powered by openbusinesscouncil.org, citiesabc.com and fashionabc.org and future as well with sportsabc.com. So we are here again to continue profiling the leaders of our times, the people that are changing, I would say, the way we think, the way we visualize our reality, but as well people that actually inspire us and take uh, new ideas or ideas that are very important in society and help us understand it and cope with it better. So in our in our series, we've been focusing and profiling the most, I would say, the most uh, cutting-edge personalities in the business and technology world. And uh, we'll continue after passing 230 interviews. We are more excited than ever. And I think there's a special guest coming. And uh, is the case of my special guest for today. That is an author, entrepreneur, and technologist that I deeply respect. And that actually I, I mentioned in one of my books, ABC, about one of his last books. And we're going to be talking today about his career and so forth. So I welcome to our series Rob Wilson. And Rob Wilson is a, a personality that goes in a lot of different things from uh, um, being an author and technologist and as well being worked with Fortune 500 companies, but as well um, being involved with companies like Quest and National Geographic and the former creative executive at Time Warner. So uh, Rob is, is a one of a kind, let's put it that way. He earned an Academy Award nomination for technical achievements, as well as over 130 innovations in design, technology and artificial intelligence. Um, that comprehends awards and different areas of, uh, I would say, uh, achievements and as well industry um, testimonies and and focus. And uh, one of the things as well, one of the achievements was precisely um, in the AI company of the year and odd AI technology of the year for some of the things he's been doing on his work. And in terms of uh, his present and major uh, role, which we're going to be talking as well, is the founder of OneReach.ai, a low-code, no-code platform for building AI and bots. And uh, at the moment, is one of the most important things, let's put it that way, that we have in our days. And then the Robert Wilson's leadership in his role, uh, in his role as lead designer and chief technologist. The company was recognized as the IS scoring company in Gartner's first critical capabilities for enterprise conversational AI platform report, which is a, a substantial achievement. As an entrepreneur, uh, Rob has founded uh, multiple successful technology companies, including Effective UI, Skybeam, Vision Nations, and more recently, of course, OneReach.ai. And I think a lot of things we, we're going to be touching that I'm particularly interested is is the co-owner of the UI, U, UX magazine with a community of over 640,000 members. And his professional career includes, uh, of course, as I mentioned, a lot of highlights from Fortune 500, but as well, one of the things that I really respect is that he's been always in the cutting edge of ideas, the cutting edge of uh, industry, and the cutting edge as well as an author and thought leader. And of course, some of the companies and roles that he's been involved or mentoring is companies like Amazon, Alexa, Google, Ogilvy, um, General Electric, Salesforce, Instagram, LinkedIn, Disney, Microsoft, MasterCard, and Boeing, just to name a few. And I think there's nothing bigger than these in the world. As a co-author, um, he did uh, uh, two major books, at least that we have been highlighting and are going to be highlighted today, The Age of Invisible Machines, 
a practical guide to creating a hyper automated ecosystem of intelligent digital workers by Wiley in September 2022. And it's a book I, I deeply recommend, and I mentioned already in my series of books ABC, but I'm going to talk today. And another book he did as well in March 2010 was Effective UI, The Art of Building Great User Experience in Software, uh, with the first edition as well by O'Reilly Media. So there's a lot of more things yeah. um, from this invitation, but uh, I, I feel tired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I don't want to make you tired. Uh, no, but I want our audience. I think it's always good to read with the person. But in your case, yeah, I I could go for hours. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I like I I hear all that, but then I I was recently on the phone with. Um, Richard Saul Warman, I don't know if you know him, but he's the founder of TED Talk. So he started TED and he's uh, he's written a hundred books and he founded <laughs> TED. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm nothing. <laughs> you know? no, I think every person has their own special um, ID and, and the shimmers and yours are exceptional. And I think especially you bring a lot of... Uh, I think you you managed to put a lot of things so different in the same um, palette, which is very difficult and as well very important, especially nowadays because there's so much different things happening. But people tend to be fragmented in looking at these things. So let's start by the Rob Wilson that we that's here with me today. How did you end up being uh, this proactive and um, polymath personality that has so much different areas of, of passion and expertise, but as well as touching so much different industries. So a bit of your background, if possible. I don't know if you want to go to childhood. I always like to touch a bit <laughs> that. What made you be who you are today? Oh, boy. I Yeah, if you want to go to childhood, it's going to be simple. It's uh, uh, from day one, you know, I, I've, I've been addicted to problems. You know, if I, if I walk past a problem, uh, I, in fact, the opposite. I don't walk past the problem. I have a hard time walking past the problem. As soon as I hear a problem, I get sucked right into it. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a distraction, right? I, I hear of a problem, I get obsessed with trying to solve it. Um, and I, and oftentimes that's not the point. My wife points that out to me often when, when she when she tells me about her problems. She's like, "I don't want you solving my problem. Like, I just can't help it." You know? um, so I think when you look at you know everything that people you know recognize me for, behind it was just a problem that I wanted to solve, and you know just down to the book. The problem was that I was on many, many phone calls, explaining the same things over and over again. And I thought, there's got to be a scalable way to do this. Um, these ideas, if if there was another book out there that covered the material, I would have just referred them to it. You know, I would have just said, you know, hey, don't listen to me. There's a book out there. But there wasn't. So I had to write one. And it, it really was that simple, right? That was the the problem I was trying to solve. And uh, it just turns out if the ideas are fresh, uh, that lots of people want to read it and it becomes a bestseller. So that, that wasn't the point. So you are a problem solver. Yeah, absolutely. Addicted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, let's look at some episode that made you, I don't know, I think there's always a moment that people in their careers made them make a breakthrough or at least uh, understand that you want to be a problem solver, for instance. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that starts in your childhood. I always like to share these moments because uh, we have a, a broader audience worldwide, but one of the things I've been finding is the devil is on details and really the, the pieces of the puzzle uh, because let's say if you want to create a, a billion dollars company, you still have to start by selling one dollar or two dollars. Mm -hmm. And if you want to create a software and AI like what you're doing, you have to go through a lot of layers until at least the software just works. And you are an expert in UI UX, you're an expert in AI, you are an expert as well in putting together a lot of different things. So let's look at this problem solver from the narrative of your career. If you if there's one or two episodes you want to highlight. Sure, sure. Um so let's say the the first problem I tried to solve was this idea. And the one that I probably launched like 20 year journey was the idea that technology was leaving certain people behind. So I was, I was invited to talk at Oxford. It was a debate. And um, the debate centered around is technology leaving people behind? And there were two sides of the debate. One is, you know, yes, but that's okay and technology has to go on and you know don't hold it back right it's not a problem and the other side of the debate is yes it is we need to regulate it we need to you know find ways to slow this down um this is you know this is going to be a problem and and uh i listened to both sides you know slow it down regulate it uh or you know don't worry about it the you know fittest of the fit kind of idea darwinism and i just didn't like either as a solution i was like boy neither one of these really fits and being a ux you know heavy in the ux community uh you know ux mag has been around for you know a couple decades almost um and i it just became clear to me that that problem lied squarely on the shoulders of the ux community if if anyone else, it was make this technology accessible. We constantly see examples of the moment technology becomes accessible, that's when it takes off. GPT chat is a great example. The technology was there for, for about a year, um, but once they put a UI on it and they put a chat interface on top of it, all of a sudden we've seen the app become the most adopted app ever right a million in a couple of weeks or whatever it was so um we see that that ux and access to technology it, it's probably more important than the invention of it and so uh so that's that's kind of what just launched it for me and then there's just sub problems in there to go okay you know questioning the interface as a whole and the way we interact with machines as a whole um and saying like is it the right way if we're leaving people behind maybe it's the problem of the language that the machine's talking and and, and that's what kind of really triggered um and then from there i just saw different ways to solve it ux magazine was sharing ideas uh almost similar to to ted but just on a smaller scale uh, effective ui you know was helping customers get more ux driven uh one reach conversational AI is uh, needing the tools, the lack of tools that were out there to apply this. So I, you know, 
I have these three endeavors for a reason. They each attack the problem from different angles. Uh, and that's, it's kind of what got me going. And now I'm just obsessed with, you know, solving that. So, so let's start by, so three things that are uh, from your career. So you, you, you had a prior career as a sound engineer and you work for mm -hmm. large fields in Hollywood and you had actually Grammys and, and there's well a lot of things and, and that you are involved. And then you shift towards uh, software and UI and UI, UI UX and then yeah. telecom and AI. So can you tell us about this evolution? Um, sure. And I think how that happened with your career. Yeah, so imagine that we're sitting in a in a room splicing 35 millimeter audio, right? And cutting words together from different takes. Um, you know, it's called dialogue editing in that world. And then, you know, the next week we're in a sound studio over uh, dubbing the actors' voices and trying to cut those words into their mouths, you know, uh, on film to try to make up for issues with the sound you know, try to create better performances. And, um, and so we're, you know, we're physically touching the medium, right? We're splicing and, and shaving uh, mag with, with razor blades and along comes digital. And you got a whole team of people, digital editing for editing the film where you're splicing the, the film and putting it together. And, and now it's just, point and click but you have a a whole industry that is used to doing things a certain way right analog this is how they work it's a craft they they feel like having their hands on it is the right way um and now you have this computer that can do things differently but nobody's using it the the old school guys are just sticking with the way they used to do it so we now need to create interfaces to the computers that are familiar to them that feel more like, uh, you know, a chem and, and a moviola and, you know, a splicer and these tools that they were used to using. And so my job and what I took on was being a bridge between those worlds. Since I knew the old world and I knew the new world, I was, you know, a technologist. I kind of took it upon myself to act as that translator for all those old timers that had, been you know cutting movies like rocky and 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 all these old films that knew the craft that you know as as uh Werman said you know it's if if shakespeare had a typewriter would would his stories be any better you know and 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 should someone else be the new shakespeare because he had a typewriter would that have given them an edge over him no the stories mattered the craft still was at the heart of it so how do we put the, you know, the, the new tools in the hands of the craftsmen? That was my challenge. And I, 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 you know, took it on wholeheartedly and it's just rolled from there. And now it's AI, right? How do we, how do we take these AI tools and put it in the hands of business and business people and the thinkers uh, versus just the people who know how to operate them? So it's a very important thing you mentioned, the trajectory from solving a problem as a, a sound engineer in a film to then start going to UI UX and then go into um, AI. So we have the fourth industrial revolution that is going, of course, in steroids, especially when we look at all these different things. And definitely all the products break through. Actually, yesterday I was going through a list of uh, 
the most uh, um, biggest breakthroughs in 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 actually in in, in history of humanity, and definitely <laughs> probably in the last one hundred years we actually shift the velocity of things more than ever, and especially in the last twenty years and the last ten years and the last five, and this becoming right now to the point that we are creating new humans and so forth. So let's look at mm -hmm. UI/UX because UI/UX is is critical. It's critical especially for building. Uh, products, uh, but as well to put the products with people and and so forth. Um, so, as a as a global authority on 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 the UI UX, how do you see UI UX? And now you see this, especially in the in the time of uh, emergent, let's say, first very basic sentient AI, and as well all the different things in the metaverse that we are getting into the Web three point zero and so forth. So, I think a lot of people are. Um, looking at like, let's look at chat GPT. Cause that's like, you know, that's the, let's say the match, right. That, that lit the fire. Um, I think a lot of people are looking at it as a, you know, an, an entire solution, almost like AGI, right. Um, you know, it's, it is the AI, uh, but it's, to me, it's never been, it, it isn't, we've been working in generative AI for a while. I've always seen it as a user interface to new and old technology and software. It's it's a front end, you know, it's not a back end. And and the way I like to explain this is is in two ways. One, if if you want to chat GPT to do something super simple like just just to greet you based on the time of day. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. It doesn't know. It has no idea if it's morning. That's not how it works. It's just a next word predictor, right? So it's just going to greet you in the way that most greetings happen on the internet, whether it's morning or afternoon or evening. So it's probably going to say good morning because we more often say good morning than we say good afternoon or good evening. So it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It's probably going to say good morning because it doesn't know what time of day it is. So how do you get that to work? How do you get it to do something that simple, right? And that basic? How smart is it if it doesn't even know if it's morning or afternoon, right? Um, you have to wrap it in some sort of cognitive architecture, like one reaches, that A, can determine the time of day of the end user, the person talking to it, not of where the server is, of where that person is. And then you have to, you know, put that into a data model that says, it's a very simple model algorithm that says, is this morning? It's 9 a.m. Is this, is this morning? Is this afternoon or is this evening? And then you just prime GPT and you say, hey, greet this person in the morning. And then it'll work, right? Now it will get it right because you have to tell it that it's morning. So determining that it's morning, telling it that it's morning, None of that's built into chat. So you can't really say it's very intelligent, right? You feed it that context and then it succeeds. So that's why I see it as a front end. The same thing as I could get chat GPT to order, to take my order for Kung Pao chicken at a Chinese restaurant that doesn't exist, but that chick, that Kung Pao chicken's not gonna ever arrive. I would be waiting forever, right? Cause it doesn't do anything. It's just a, facade it's in the movie industry it's like the house cardboard house that has no actual rooms right 
Um, it just looks like a house. So it needs all of that backend to start working. So if you start seeing it as just another user interface, like a dropdown or a map or a menu, um, it needs all of that stuff in the back to make it useful. And, and so it's not a breakthrough in backend technology you're looking at. It's a breakthrough in front-end technology, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's a key element in the front-end, between the front-end and the back-end. But as well, from the front-end, uh, we are dealing with, especially at the moment, uh, most of our interactions digitally pass it through a phone or through a desktop. And uh, increasingly, as well with our wearables like watches and so forth that are integrating technology and cars. Actually, a lot of user experience in the cars is, is critical. So from a, a pure UI, UX and front end that you're talking about, so from your experience of building from soundtrack for films and all the editing and engineering to actually building advanced areas of uh, things, and it's actually something that I love about your book, is that you, you go and you look at... Uh, all these nuances, but you put it in a very practical way for people to understand and actually create a narrative. So one of the things that I find, the, uh, and actually that's why I created the, actually this, this podcast and as well a lot of my work and actually the platforms I'm trying to solve like Open Business Council. So for this Open Business Council came because I found out that 90% of the business don't even have a website or any digital presence. And this is global numbers. So we're talking about 400 million SMEs and micro SMEs worldwide. For instance, the UK, which is uh, top five, six countries in the world, and one of the most digital, around 68%, 65 this is official numbers, don't have a website. So if we go through just this part, is that people are dealing with huge amount of advanced technology. And I had the case of going to Africa and using a phone uh, in a small fisherman market in the middle of the desert. And effectively, everyone was using the UI UX of WhatsApp and actually sending things for their WhatsApp, and they had a very small phone just to provide them capacity to phone because the electricity doesn't work very well, but they had a smartphone that actually worked. At mm -hmm. least they use it for, for WhatsApp. So in the end of the day, um, what you're talking, when it comes to a lot of the things you're talking about UI UX is simplify things to get one thing that you can do very easily. And of course, there's a mass adoption that we need to get into that. So how do we go through this process? Because there's a lot of things you speak about the book, and I want to go to the book in a while. But how do you get this this simplicity, like you said, the front end? And for people listening to us, how do mystify this? Because of course, not everyone is as technical. As yeah, you. yeah. Let's look at let's look at let's take an example, like you just said. Uh, ha, ha, you said ninety percent or eighty percent don't have websites, right? Which is crazy. What a crazy statistic, right? In this day and age, that they don't have a website. So of course, the problem solver in me goes, "Why? I got to know why now." You know, you just did it. Like, that's it. You ruined my week. Now that's all I'm going to want to know. <laughs> I'm going to figure I, out why. I have, I have a strategy for you. Well, I continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to, I'm going to start guessing and say that uh, the, my first guess is going to be it's, we've made it easier to make websites, but we still haven't made it easy enough. That's it. That's simple. Right. Um, so what if the, some large portion of those 90% just had to open up a chat, whatever chat they did, SMS, I don't care, right? Whatever, they opened their phone and said, hey, can you make me a website for my barbershop? Uh, I'm open between this time and that time. Uh, I, here's where I'm located. And we do men's, women's and kids haircuts. And you had a website. And that's it. Now you have one. 
would we have more websites? Would would we take a dent out of those 90% if if it took them 10 seconds or 15 seconds to have a website? I, I think yes. I think I think absolutely yes. And so what we realized is to get a website, you got to go to the internet and you got to open your browser and you've got to find a page that offers websites and you got to sign up and you got to create a password and then you got to get a template and then you got to choose a template and then you got to write this stuff in the template and then you got to buy a domain name. All of these things, right? That's why. That's why they don't have one because we think we've made it so much easier as it used to be that it's easy. It's not. And you just said the statistic says it can't be easy if 90% don't have one. It's still very hard. Anything that only 10% of the population can do can't be easy. <laughs> no, completely. And I think this is actually this kind of solving. And that's what I love about your book as well. Although in your book, you go a further a step away, but this is a key element. So, so just to wrap up on new IUX, because I think, for instance, let's look at the biggest uh, uh, developments in software in the last 10, 20 years. Definitely mobile technologies is the most advanced one because it facilitates. So for instance, I had the case study, for instance, in Brazil that I was working with a, uh, actually a financial inclusion organization and I was uh, uh, helping the, the organization. They were actually in one of the worst favelas, which is this kind of slums, uh, hardcore, really hardcore, where you can actually go with machine guns and you have all this kind of crazy, which you don't even believe unless you know and you are told about it. And it's actually happening as we speak. But one of the things that I was completely shocked is that this this organization I was working was so even people that didn't know how to re, how to write, which still persists unfortunately, they were using WhatsApp through voice. Yeah. So they know how to read, so they send the voice, and then people speak. And actually, I realized that in emerging markets, most of the people don't text; they actually just yes. send voice. Uh, so that's a small thing in terms of UIUX. But then the thing I, I was realizing is that. So people have access to 3G, 4G, not always. And this is a breakthrough. But then, for instance, if you look at crypto, which is another massive thing, mm -hmm. the, the really massive option is still not there. We're talking about 300 million people that are uh, at least doing transactions. And this is not different from PayPal. When it started with PayPal, it was the email. The email was the first way of doing PayPal. I, I always use that as, as an analogy. But when you go right now to ChatGPT, like you said, of course, it's very still, uh, for us, it's still very, very low, but it's already disrupting entire business models and yeah. already disrupting even, even the Google search and all this stuff. So this part of the UIUX, just to wrap up here. So from your experience as, a, as, a, as a, an expert, what do you think is the, the, the problem, the tricking solution for the problem? Because that's normally when you look at this, it's always about how you get people to get to something that is simple. Because it's like when you start reading on paper or you start reading, uh, we have to adapt our imagination, our stuff to paper and to papier first and so forth. So um, how do you look at this, especially as the velocity right now is, is kind of disrupting all the patterns, especially you and me um, that uh, are no longer children. We actually, we still have very yeah. young, we have already a lot of uh, layers of education and you and me are very innovative, but people normally after their 30, 40 stop. So uh, yeah. how do you see this, especially with innovation velocity? Yeah, let's, let's look at crypto. That's a great example, I think. So crypto comes out, um, you know, the concepts are, are, addictive people love the idea of decentralization and you know the the whole 
the whole idea is is alluring. Um, so so then you go in the early days. Let's go buy some. <laughs> like so hard to figure out, right? Oh, you got to get this key, and then you got to save this key on your day. Like oh my god! And then how do you do a transaction, right? So so the guy who doesn't have a website, right? <laughs> like he's going to start trading in crypto really like he doesn't even have a website <laughs> there's no way he's doing crypto um so then these companies come out like FTXs, these exchanges right and they make it easier they make it more familiar it's oh you just run your credit card and buy it's like a bank we'll just make it seem like a bank you so they make it more familiar you they make it feel like banking right so now this this huge wave jumps onto crypto that because they made it more accessible to people, right? But again, still most people don't own crypto and don't use crypto regularly. So what does that tell us? Just like websites, it's still not easy enough, right? So what if it could be, hey, bot, you know, buy me $10 with the crypto and by the way, uh, send $2 to mom. Would they use crypto then? Um, now it becomes accessible to everybody who can talk, right? And if that's in a thousand different languages, now we're golden, right? Now we now we haven't left anyone behind. So it's all about bringing the technology to them. And I think that's where everybody's missed the point. When we look at people not utilizing technology, we always think of how to teach them, how to educate them and bring them to the technology. But what we really need to do is bring the technology to them. Teach the machines to talk to them. Don't try to teach them to talk to the machines. And most people would say, well, that's harder. And I would say, well, we just did it. That's what just happened. We just cracked that. So now let's, let's not worry about educating people on how to use antiquated user interfaces. Let's now take machines and teach them how to talk to people. Why can't I buy crypto and conversational AI right now? It really would take somebody two weeks to pull that off. That is not a big effort. It's now it's just do it, right? Uh, and that part of the success of ChatGPT is the simplicity. <laughs> you ask a right. question, the answer. So the UI, <laughs> it cannot be easier to understand for anyone. So yeah. let's go to your to your company and then to your book because I want uh, for people that don't know so much. I think is really, uh, especially one rich.ai and a lot of the things you've been doing are really cutting edge. Um, can you tell us about it? How it works? Because of course, right now with the ChatGPT, there's an inception of thousands yeah. of companies doing. But what you guys are doing is really cutting edge. Like I mentioned, is a Gartner uh, leader uh, worldwide. But for people that don't know, one reach.ai, and please go there and search because it's really a lot of cool stuff for you to learn. But uh, tell us about this. Yeah. So, like I said, if 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 models like large language models are like front ends. And to make software useful, you need a backend. That example I just gave, buy me some crypto. I, you can go right now to ChatGPT and ask it to buy you crypto. It, it may say, sorry, I can't do that. Or it may say, okay. Either way, you're not going to end up with crypto, no matter what it says. Yes. Because it can't actually do it, right? It can just fake doing it. Um, so in order for 
that to happen, you got to plug it into what we call a cognitive architecture. You need, think of like putting an engine into a car without all of the other pieces, the, the engine's worthless to most people. It's just an engine. So if you want to establish what time it is, if you want to send crypto, if you want to, uh, you know, transact a credit card and and then convert it to crypto and then send it to somebody, you need these backend pieces to plug in to chat GPT or any large language model so that they actually can do work, so they can be useful, not just be talking faces, but actually have the ability to do work. Um, I recognized early on that this was that large language models and, and NLU was coming. Um, and I also believed early on that these would be commoditized very quickly. You know, we're going to see Lambda come out with Google. It's going to be uh, just as good as, if not better than ChatGPT3. We got ChatGPT4. Elon Musk is talking about coming out with a model. We got a, a number of other um, major players coming out with new models. We're just going to keep seeing these models come out. So what we wanted to create is a way to harness these, um, not be one of them, um, to harness them and make them useful to do work. Uh, and so OneReach is a cognitive infrastructure that would allow you to sequence these things so that ChatGPT knew what time of day it was. So it could transact on crypto. So it could send an email to Comcast to try to get your internet back up and running. It could cancel uh, your flight, all of these things. Um, now we have transformation, right? We have systemic change once these things can do things. Like you can right now in OneReach, putting chat GPT with OneReach, have it build a website and deploy it for somebody. This is possible today, right now. We would be the part that actually builds it, deploys it, and hosts that website. Chat GPT would be the interface that someone used to tell it what that website should look like. Yeah, and effectively, for instance, I, I'm a, a, I'm an artist as well, and I do a lot of painting and drawing. And at the moment, for instance, one of the things I'm doing is precisely using language and the prompt, the definition of prompt. Right. I think the name is terrible, but the prompt is, cre is key to work with the machines. And definitely what you can do is astonishing. But coming back to onereach.ai, so what you guys are doing is generative AI and the conversational AI mm -hmm. and trying to put this together which is yeah. quite amazing. And I think for people listening to us, please go and try to see because there's a lot of cutting edge stuff. And, and especially what is interesting is that you are trying to apply this to make it much more advanced for a traditional mobile. So is it possible to, at the moment for people listening to us and in your solu solution, so picking in some things from your website, there's a no code, low code process automation platform with conversational AI built in and everything you need to handle. So. Any company right now can get to this and can use this for ideas and inspiration, tools, training, and security. So it's mostly for now just be, you have already some major brands involved some oh, yeah. in the world. So a bit of your solution. So how can people use, uh, if let's say, if someone in the audience and probably me as well, how can I become a client or become a partner with OneReach.ai and how you are pushing this forward besides the big corporations that we are already working? So yeah, right now, um, due to the power of it. So if you 
if you think of chat GPT plus the ability to do work and you put those together, it's, it's a, uh, very powerful long knives, right? Very dangerous as well. Um, so, you know, in one reach within five minutes, you could have GPT talking to somebody over a telephone. Uh, it could, you can, you can get a phone number, you could set up a phone call and you could have it, uh, talking to somebody using voice and a very real sounding voice. So, um, we've been very, very careful not to release it to anybody. We're trying to make sure that when we release it to the public broadly, which we'll be doing um, in, at the end of this quarter, beginning of next quarter, uh, it's just taken us a couple of years to put up all the guardrails to make sure that this can't be abused in the wrong way because you know that's our number one concern. Um, so right now you'd have to contact us and, and we have to vet to make sure that it's a legitimate uh, use of the app and application of the tool. So, um, so that's where it is now, but, you know, coming into this quarter, beginning of next quarter, people will be able to come in and start trying it, um, within a, a sandbox and safety, safety zone. Well, it's fantastic. And, uh, and I think this is a great, uh, uh, path right now to go to your book because this, this open all the, the Pandora box and the good things and bad things that can come, can come out of this. So, um, for people that didn't saw my small presentation, at least my in my podcast about books, ABC, I highlight already the book, which I love. And the book is actually fantastic because it goes very technical and at the same time very practical. And it gets a lot of stories. So one of the things about the book, so for at least the last one I will talk more about today, and I want to get, get the bridge between your career, UI UX, and the age of invisible machines, a practical guide to creating a hyper-automated ecosystem of intelligent digital workers, um, which... Uh, it's I really urge everyone everyone that is in digital should be reading this because <laughs> you lose a lot and you actually save a lot of things but what do you touch here so a lot of the things you, you're talking here is precisely uh, the areas of um, let's look at uh, first of all uh, explaining how this age is creating and the organizations of self-driving and growing ecosystem of interconnected automation accelerating in all aspects of business, which is one of the biggest things of the fourth industry revolution of the times we live today, whatever name we want to call it. And then, of course, you touch about conversational AI, changing the nature of every job and every company, which is still in the early days, but is already making a massive revolution and is going to change everything at the moment. Like you mentioned, at the moment, uh, for instance, even if I want to have someone supporting me, a lot of my team can be replaced with this. And it's not like I want to replace my team. Actually, I, I'm obliging all my team to use ChatGPT, which is another thing, is the education and support. And that's well, one of the things you touch a lot in the book, uh, besides the common myths about these areas, of these areas is as well, the compelling discussions of the ethical dilemmas that lie in wait as mass adoption or conversational AI takes hold. So let's look at this because we didn't touch, I think we touched more of the technology. Let's look at the ethics. And I would say it's not just the ethics, is is the for instance, one of the things I was actually reading a quote, and I will I'll quote the quote because I think it's important here. It's from William Gibson, which is another, of course, personality that is changing the way we think. But William Gibson uh, wrote this, which is fantastic. Uh, that is precisely one thing that is key for what you're talking about. And I want to take this for the question for you. Times moves in one direction memory another 
we are this, that strange species that constructs artifacts intended to counter the natural flow of forgetting. So that's, this quote is fantastic for your book because yeah. in the other day, all this automation is a way of taking out what does matter and keeping the memories. But at the same time, of course, society is not as advanced as probably you and me would like to. Um, so how do you look at the ethics with all this part of the yeah. flow? Time and technology are not stopping. So let's put it that way. Yeah, so I have two lenses. The first, you know, dates back to being in the film industry. So, you know, creating a lot of films um, over the years uh, in my early early life, um, I found myself at one time in Oklahoma, sitting around the table with a bunch of farmers. And I was used to telling people what I did and then being like, wow, what actors did you work with? And, you know, I, I would, you know, so when I told someone what I did, I was used to them being impressed, right? This was sort of part of the dialogue. But the farmer next to me leans over. He's like, what do you do? I say, you know, I explain what I do. And he goes, what's that good for? And I just paused. I was like, right, you grow food. Like you feed people. I waste their time. In fact, I measure success by how many people waste two hours <laughs> of their day watching what we create. I'm literally measuring success by the sheer quantity of hours wasted of human beings, right? Like, okay. I think we can understand that most businesses and most jobs are not necessities. <laughs> These are not growing food, right? He could have said that to a lot of people. Um, you know, why do we need tie makers? Do we need ties? Like, I don't, you know, I, I never saw a tie in my survival kit, right? Oh, I got to have a tie. So I think it's very clear that we invent jobs to keep ourselves busy and we invent jobs that aren't necessarily to create things we need. Um, and so the idea that we're going to stop inventing jobs as machines start taking the jobs we have is a bit of a silly idea, in my opinion. We're really good at, you know, the invention of the cappuccino machine was the beginning of the barista, not the end of the barista. So I, I, I just don't know what people are looking backwards at and imagining that we're not going to create new jobs for ourselves. This seems like a ludicrous idea. Um, the, the second thing is, I, in some ways, I like the idea of artificial intelligence because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a useful tool to explain smart machines. In a lot of ways, I don't like it because it compares machines to humans, and I wonder if that's even necessary at all. I think there was the original invention of the machine and I think they've been getting smarter and smarter and more complicated over the over the years throughout the Industrial Revolution. And when the airbag came along, if I explained that to someone in the early days and I said, yeah, the car knows when it's in an accident and it deploys this bag of air that softens the blow for hitting the steering wheel, they would be like, wow, so the car thinks <laughs> like uh, no, it's got a sensor in the front and the bumper hits. Like once you know how it works, you've demystified it. How intelligent is the car? We're just talking about a gradual case of machines getting smarter and smarter. So if a, a, you know, a power saw can recognize the difference between cutting through a piece of wood and a finger, that's a good thing. And 
So machines have been killing us since the invention of machines. Cars kill us, factories kill us, nuclear weapons kill us, tanks kill us. Machines are killing us every day. Possibly them being smarter is the answer to them not killing us versus a danger that they're going to do more killing. And so I think if we just lose the fact that machines are going to replace humans, I just don't see that. Machines are just going to keep getting smarter as they have been incrementally. And hopefully that button that Putin can press is smart. Smart enough to know if he's crazy. Smart enough to know if there's alignment. Smart enough to think I don't want it to be a simple machine. I want it to be a smart machine. And, and maybe this idea of artificial general intelligence and machines replacing humans is just a red herring. And, and, and all we're really talking about is just a gradual case of machines getting smarter. And we're a long way from replacing humans. Maybe never, because is that really the goal? I don't, I don't know that that's the goal for anyone in artificial intelligence to replace humans. It's to help them, as any machine has always been meant to do. Yeah, it's, uh, I agree with you. And, and uh, it's, it's a paradox. I think humanity is based on paradox. And of course, you mentioned cars, but if you go to uh, with the discovery of fire, it probably destroy all <laughs> the world. And the discovery of knives and, and uh, well, a lot of the things we did before. But but let's look at um, there's always a um, let's look at the you are programming AI and I am as well of course you are much more advanced but one of the things I'm learning even in a, in a YouTube channel which we have to push the content to a, towards different audience there's a lot of work of distribution and syndication and of course all of the other things we work on metaverse and so forth so one of the things as well is there's there's two versions or actually three three versions of humanity one is I think. Uh, one that uh, humanity or nature and the universe is neutral. So things just converge in a kind of a cynical way that things will mm -hmm. happen anyway. And that cynical way, of course, is the worst thing we can do. The other one is probably even worse. That is the virus that goes and destroys everything. And this is one thing that uh, nature is there present. And of course, you work in Hollywood, a lot of the narrative of Terminators and all these kind of narratives of the self-destruction of, of species to create other species. Uh, actually, I love the film of Ridley Scott, uh, the precisely the Pandora, in the sense that is a film that actually highlights the narrative of superhumans that created humans, but that then they forgot it and they care less about it and yeah. they went forward. So, and then of course, there's the other narrative that is more on a narrative where we actually can get a, a balanced ecosystem of nature. So uh, as we are programming machines and the machines are learning, for instance, there was the case recently, I think the last, last couple of weeks um, of the ChatGPT being integrated on Bing and uh, they had to limit it because there were people that start insulting the chat and the generative AI of the chat start, yeah. becoming, of course, upset and start going back and forth and start <laughs> counterbalancing in an aggressive way, which makes complete sense. If you insult a person, there's only so far you can go and being polite. So right. um, so I think that you see these three varieties, especially someone that has the responsibility of building advanced technology and advanced AI. And as well, you are, in your case, I think there's three levels. There's you as a thought leader, there's you as a technologist, and you as well as UI UX, because you can make it 
more aggressive, less aggressive. Uh, and this level is a big question, but it, I think it's an important question for people that are building technology and for people that are using technology, because most of people don't think about it. Uh, and yeah. that's the next question. Yeah, yeah. So let's, I, I think you have to look at it broadly and you say global warming is uh, it's just another way machines are killing us, right? Um, and should we have had the dialogue back then when we were inventing the you know, combustion engine about the danger of this creating global warming and killing us um, one day. Had we known this was coming, we'd you know, hopefully have been talking about it and, um, and maybe we would have done something about it um, back then. Uh, maybe not, probably not just knowing how we are. Uh, we tend to only fix problems, not, not avoid them. Um, but it's the same idea, you know, machines um, getting smarter, uh, you know, in some ways they're going to fix some of those dumb machines that we have and, and what they're doing to us. They're going to help resolve some of those issues. Um, and in some ways they're going to make things work and, and introduce new is issues. And I think what's important is that we try to try to look forward. We try to do what we didn't do in the past and play chess instead of checkers and see the implications of some of these smart machines and where they're going to take us and start regulating that. Now we regulate cars. This isn't a new idea, right? Cars are dangerous. They're one of the most dangerous machines that are around us. They kill us regularly. And we have all kinds of regulation around them to protect us from those machines. So we know how to do this. We know how to regulate it. And cars are super useful. So we know how to regulate it while keeping them useful and keeping their usefulness. Um, and I think it's just uh, trying to get regulation and and the regulators to move as fast as the technology is moving. That's the trick. Um, and I think that's that's the puzzle is how do we get uh, technology to move at the uh, sorry, get regulators and 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 the political process to move at the speed that technology is moving. Yeah. And, and as well, humans. <laughs> uh, yeah. Humans, regulators yeah. are much slower than humans. True, so, true. I know that we are going out of time. I don't know if you have at least space for two more questions or three, but if not, I want to really do a second a second round, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so one of the questions I have right now is precisely about uh, how do we learn out of this? Because your book is fantastic to open a lot of uh, clues, how to deal with the automation, how to take it to processing companies and business, which I think everyone should really, and I'm obliging my team at least to study yeah. at the top level, but everyone should do, and that's why... I, I, it's an honor to interview, but the challenge right now is that so, and it comes back to UI UX, and I think your role on that and building technology is key, is that humans, we took us 30,000 years to reach the species that we are now. So at the moment, uh, are we creating, and the question is, uh, I will try to make it not so big, all my questions mm -hmm. normally are too big, is... Can we build a, an AI iteration of humanity that complements the best of humanity and not the worst of humanity? Let's let's do it black and white. How do you see this? Um, you know, this kind of comes down to crypto, right? Crypto, um, I, it's similar. Crypto is secure as long as there's more people, good guys, than there are bad guys. As long as there's more encrypting versus decrypting, more machines and people focused on encrypting than decrypting, it'll work. And it's the same here, you know, as long as there's more people focused on uh, 
you know, controlling AI for good, then, you know, AI for good fights AI for bad. That's, it's going to be a similar thing, just like encrypting and decrypting. So um, I'm an optimist in that I think, generally speaking, most people are good. And therefore, I think society as a whole will, um, you know, we'll have more people focusing on how to get safe control of this than there will be people on trying trying to figure out how to abuse it. Um, again, it just comes down to that speed uh, on how to do it. Um, when I see companies, I, I find it interesting. Here's a great example. A lot of companies are adopting conversational AI to try to automate their call center and put it in front of their customers. And that's where they begin. And they're like, hey, this is where I'm gonna get a better ROI. They're trying to justify you know, removing call center reps. And you could say that this is like um, practicing on your most valuable resource, your customers. Like, why do they start there? You know, in the book, I always say, if you're going to adopt conversational AI, you should do it very quickly, but start with friendly, start with your team, then start with your employees who are friendly to it and will give you feedback. And then once you nail it and you feel comfortable with the technology and you feel like you understand how to regulate and control it within your company, then go to your customers. They should be the last place you go, not the first place you go. Um, and I think it's counterintuitive from a technology adoption standpoint that all these companies are focused on customer service as the first place to begin when their customers are so valuable to them. Don't screw it up there. Screw it up on your employees that are friendly to it. That will give you constructive feedback and, and don't mind. Um, so a lot of that has to do with how they're justifying it, the economics. They see, you know, how much money can we save by implementing, you know, password reset and automating this? Oh, I can cut this many agents and save this much time. And then that justifies the purchase of the AI. I still think that that's a fair statement to make. It's still fair to say that that's where the money is eventually going to come from. But you should look more broadly and say, Implementing it internally will eventually get paid for by automation externally, but don't start with the project on your customers. Justify it with eventually automation and being able to automate that stuff, but focus on starting with internal. So get the funding for HR from marketing and from the customer uh, budgets um, to fund doing some internal stuff. No, fantastic. And I, I could not subscribe more. So one last question, very respectful of your time. So sure. um, one of the things the book mentions and you touched right now on this is precisely the concept of intelligent digital worker. And mm -hmm. then you have the core functions, the primary skills, the flows and saps, and you have like fantastic infographics for people listening to the book or reading to the book that is really amazing to think out of the box and actually put what you just said in practice because that's the challenge. So can you talk about this concept that is actually common in all the book, intelligent digital work, which we right. all need to be, and of course, the relationship with the intelligent automation? Yeah. Um, so intelligent, you know, we can see that GPT can uh, fool us into perceiving intelligence from a machine, right? I mean, it's not intelligent, but it, but it's very good at making us believe it is. Um, so perception is reality. 
And if you believe it's intelligent to many people, that makes it intelligent. Um, so let's just, uh, without getting into that, let's just say it's intelligent. Let's say that's what everybody's wowed by. Wow, this, this seems intelligent. But it's not a worker, right? It, it does very little work. It's intelligent. It needs work. Um, intelligence as a worker is one that you can communicate with, understands you, and then can go buy crypto, can go order an Uber for you, can coordinate 10 people to attend a meeting at one time, can actually do the work. So when you take intelligence and a digital intelligence, and then you add digital worker and you put it together, you get this superpower, which is where it unlocks hyper automation. So one reaches the worker part. These NLU models like GPT is the intelligent part. You, you need both of those to get work done. You put it simple and synthetic is more complex, but uh, I appreciate. Uh, I have much more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, it's been an honor. There's a lot of food for thought. Please go and buy the book or read or go to the website invisiblemachines.ai and uh, learn about Rob and, and, and actually not just learn, get into solving the problems and asking the problems. It's been an honor, Rob. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.